Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Can I tell you a story real quick? (laughs) The other day, I go out to my friend's party. He and his wife do this weekly event. So I get there. His wife is not there yet. And so he's like, hey, D, what's up? How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. It's so funny. We were talking about you the other day. And I was like, really? What did I do? And he was like, we're lounging around the house. We decide, let's go out, get something to eat, pick up something real quick. She gets ready. I'm dressed. So I'm, you know, waiting for her. So she comes out and was like, oh, oh, no, you got to change. You can't go out like that. And he was like, what? I can't go out like what? I got on a shirt and some sweatpants. I can't go out. And she was like, absolutely not. You may not go out like that. And he was like, what's the problem? I'm listening to this story and I'm clueless. I'm like, how could I possibly be involved in this conversation? His wife goes, no, you're looking like one of them men on Demetria's page. He was like, on Demetria's page? He was like, all Demetria talk about is travel and like pop culture. And she was like, you ain't been on Demetria's page. Go look at Demetria's page. So he goes to my page. He sees the pictures of the men. He doesn't see anything strange or different. He looks at the comments. The comments are all about the background, the man's shoulders, the towels, the ceiling fan, his smile, all sorts of, you know, frivolous and arbitrary things. And he was like, what's the problem? And she was like, it's a game. It's a game. They're looking at the dick. Is this what my Instagram page is known for now? We play, you know, the rules like once a week, once every other week. I don't really want to be known as the page with all the D on it. That just means I have to post more of other things because I love You Know the Rules. I think it's such a hilarious game. The first time I played it, my mother saw it and was like, "Um, you still wearing your glasses, right? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, when you drive? And I was like, of course, I need them to see. And she was like, you might need to wear them at home, too. Or when you're on the computer or your phone, because you're missing life's details. (laughs) She didn't understand the game. And I tried to explain it to her. And she was just like, but that's not funny. She don't get it. She just don't get it. Anyway, welcome back to another episode of Ratchet and Respectable. I have a wonderful lineup for you this week. One of my, I didn't know she was going to be one of my favorite people. She was someone I was curious about. Alicia Garza. She's an Oakland-based organizer, writer, public speaker, and freedom dreamer. And also, where you may know her from best, she is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter and principal at the Black Futures Lab. I was thinking the other day about people who I wish I knew more about, and I realized that I know Alicia's name. I've read bunches of articles about her. If I ran into her on the street, I could spot her. But I didn't know anything about her, who she is as a woman, her opinions on anything that wasn't political or racial or dealing with activism. She's such a prominent woman, and I thought that was really weird. So I figured if I wanted to know more, other people might as well. So I was able to catch up with her. We have a great, not so much an interview, conversation later on in the podcast. We talked about Judge Joe Brown and him being bizarrely upset that Harriet Tubman may someday be on the $20 bill, T.I., and the national discussion he sparked about his daughter's hymen, and that Washington Post story about the black serial killer, alleged black serial killer, he was targeting black women because nobody cared. 
happened. That's what the police suspect. But before we get into that wonderful conversation, there are a couple other things that I want to talk about. I wanted to talk about Omarion and that interview he did with Vlad TV. I did a video about it on my social media, so I'm not going to rehash it here. If you haven't been following along, in short, Omarion and the mother of his two children broke up. And later she began dating one of his bandmates from B2K. They are still together. These two have been very public about their relationship and they have been taunting Omarion. A couple weeks ago, this meme starts circulating about how unbothered Omarion must be because his ex-bandmate and the mother of his children are all over social media and we've not heard a peep from him. Last weekend, he does this interview with Vlad TV and he is the picture of unbothered, relaxed, carefree, no worries in this world. I'm like, who is this man's therapist? This, that ain't just self-help. That's professional intervention to maintain his calm. So I did this video where I was applauding him. I said very much that I respected him. And two things came to my attention today. One of them was an old Instagram photo from his B2K bandmate from April. It just started circulating again, probably as a reaction to Amarion's interview with Vlad TV. But it's Little Fizz. That's the bandmate who's with Omarion's children's mother. He posted a picture on Instagram of him sitting on a ledge or some such on the phone. And the caption is something like, on the phone with your baby mama in my at Fashion Nova men. I didn't know how bad Omarion was being taunted by this couple. I'm not a big B2K fan. I never followed them closely. They came out when I was in college. I wasn't really into boy bands at that point. Wasn't a Marion fan. Icebox was on my divorce playlist. I already had a deep respect for Omarion for how he conducted himself in that Vlad TV interview. After I saw that caption, I was like, you know what? And I don't believe in violence. But if Omarion was to punch old boy dead in his face, it would not change my opinion of him whatsoever. I'll also add this. Omarion could be a complete demon behind closed doors. Because he was able to conduct himself like a sensible, rational, grown-ass man in that interview, not only does his child's mother and his ex-bandmate look crazy right now, anything that happens going forward People will always give Omarion the benefit of the doubt. There is something to be said for publicly acting like you have sense. Giving folks the perception that you have good sense, even if you ain't got none. If you can pull it together publicly, it'll take you a little bit further than acting fucking crazy all the time will. Mm, I'm forgetting the most important part of this. We're having this conversation on my personal Facebook page about Little Fizz and this caption. One of my friends slides in my inbox and was like, sis, you know why Omarion's so unbothered, yeah? She sent me a photo. She warned me and I guessed. I had to write her back. I said, ma'am, is this Photoshop? She said, look on the internet. Don't use your work Wi-Fi. Look on the internet. See for yourself. So I did. If you were listening to this at work, 
I would suggest to you that you do not do a Google search of Omarion and dick pic and then promptly click images from your work devices. Please also remove yourself from the work Wi-Fi. I would like everyone to still be gainfully employed after they see this image. Girl, boys, people who do not subscribe to binary gender definitions, but are interested in seeing Omarion's photo. Y'all in for a sight. And I'll leave it at that. Once I saw the picture, I was like, oh, that's why Omarion's so unbothered. I'd be unbothered too. Also, if I was April, I probably wouldn't have left. That's hard to replace. Anyways, moving along. Can we talk about Queen and Slim again? Again, I'm not giving up any details. I am planning to drop my review the Monday after Thanksgiving. Queen and Slim comes out Thanksgiving Day. I would highly suggest that you see it as soon as you possibly can. If your theater is playing it Wednesday night, by all means, go. It's really, really, really good. And I don't want you to have any spoilers. That said, if you are super interested in the movie and you do not mind spoilers, the New York Times did a very amazing and very long in-depth review of Queen and Slim. And they give away major plot points to the film. So if you don't mind the film being spoiled, you want to know exactly what you're walking into and what to expect. The New York Times has given away a lot of the goods. Last but not least, can we talk about Lonnie Love from The Real? She's been dating a very nice man that she's head over heels for. He is a non-Wakandan man. He is a white man. Lonnie is super, super, super into him. She seems incredibly happy, and I am very happy for her. She was speaking about him, and she said, and she said that she wouldn't have the great love that she has now if she had not dropped her reservations and chosen to take a chance by dating a man outside of her race. Guest co-star Tisha Campbell asked her what she loves about her new man the most, and Lonnie said, it's that he's loyal to me in every way that other men were not. Wow. She goes on to talk about him, and she breaks into tears, and she says that she's thinking of her friends who are without the type of love and support that they deserve because they've been dating the wrong men or they've given up on trying to find one because they've had bad experiences. So many of our sisters are so lonely, and they don't want to admit it, and they get all they have to do is take a chance. I'm so happy for her. She sounds like she's really in an amazing, supportive reciprocal kind of relationship. Good for her. Great for her. I would wish that for all women who want to be in relationships. What she's describing is ideal. I will say this. I saw some conversation online about what she said. She seems to imply, perhaps unintentionally, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt because I don't know her to make silly statements. So I think this is just a wording issue that maybe people ran with. Some people interpreted what she said to be, if you go get a white man, he's going to be loyal to you. He's going to treat you right. And he might. You could also get a black man who may be loyal and treat you right. Loyalty is not the domain of non-black men. And ain't shittiness is not the domain of black men. 
and I would like to make a case in point. Hunter Biden, he is the son of Joe Biden, who we used to call Uncle Joe until he started making problematic statements. He just killed all his goodwill. What I'm about to say about Hunter is not a reflection on father on his father, Joe. Hunter is a grown ass man who has chosen to live a life of shenanigans. Hunter divorced his wife. His wife accused him in the divorce filings of blowing all their money on sex workers and cocaine. Hunter's brother passed away. He left a widow and I believe two children behind. Hunter took it upon himself to begin dating his dead brother's widow. I think at the time there was a lot of goodwill for Joe Biden. So people were just like, well, we just going to let it be. The family's in mourning. We don't quite get it, but let it go on. While dating his dead brother's widow, Hunter cheats on her. And not only does he cheat, he has a side baby with the woman he cheats with. And not only does he have the side baby, he doesn't pay child support for the baby. And then he denies even having sex with the woman. So she goes to court and has a paternity test done, which determines scientifically that Hunter Biden is the father of this child and he cheated on his dead brother's widow. This all came to light a couple days ago. He left his dead brother's widow. He left the woman that he cheated on the widow with and made a baby with. Earlier this year, he comes out to L.A., he meets some chick that he knows for six days and gets married. He's currently married to her. Maybe since July? Mess. Hunter is white. Sometimes, not as often as I used to, I would see women dog out black men and they would talk about how white women don't have these problems. White men do this, speaking of something positive. White men don't do that, speaking of something negative. I just use the example of Hunter to be like white women dealing with some shit too. I just want to remind people that if you would like to go out and find some love that does not share your melanin, good for you and God bless. And I say that with no sarcasm and no malice. Go find the lid for your pot. If you are a little black pot and you find a lid that is brown or white or green or purple or red, God bless you and the lid that fits your pot. But just don't think because you a little black pot and you go get a non-black lid that it's automatically going to be gravy. You got to evaluate everybody. Check them out for good sense and substance and quality character. Don't just be rushing and be like, oh, he white. White man's ice is not colder. Neither is anyone else's. Okay, we're going to get into this interview with Alicia Garza. But first... I need to share some words from a couple of our sponsors. Hold tight. My summer shenanigans were great, but now I'm itching to get back into my fall routine. After all the barbecues and eating out on vacations, I'm ready to get back in the habit of eating what's good for me. But finding time to look for recipes, get to the grocery store, and meal prep makes it so overwhelming. That's what's great about Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest makes it easier than ever to get back into the habit of eating more fruits and vegetables with thoughtfully sourced chef-crafted food that can be prepared in less than five minutes. 
Each Daily Harvest cup takes one step to prepare with room for customization. Add your favorite milk to a smoothie, I like almond, and blend. Or eat a Harvest bowl and top it with avocado or a fried egg. I do both. All of Daily Harvest ingredients are sourced and selected for maximum nourishment and peak season flavor. Daily Harvest is the quickest and most convenient way to eat a delicious and nutritious meal or snack, whether you're at your desk, on the go, or studying hard. If you'd like to give Daily Harvest a try, go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code RESPECTABLE to get $25 off your first Daily Harvest box. That's promo code RESPECTABLE for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. So Alicia Garza, I'm so happy to have you on Ratchet and Respectable. I'm really excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Can I tell you that when I reached out, I was like, I don't know if she's going to do it because like, she's so respectable. (laughs) You're laughing. I love that you're laughing at the idea of that. That's wonderful. Of course, I know who you are, but the only thing I know about you is activist, 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 activist. I don't know anything about you as a person or a woman or like not being an activist. Mm, Well, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots to say. And maybe you'd be surprised to know that I'm probably the least respectable person you will ever Really? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're so dignified. It's true. No, it's true. I'm proud of my ratchet and I um, weaponize it well. Interesting. What what do you do that's ratchet, Alicia? (laughs) Anytime you catch me drinking tequila, you will understand exactly what my ratchet looks like. Yes, I have many tequila nights. Many tequila nights. (laughs) There's a there's a public face and then there's also me. If you know me well, very few of my friends would describe me as respectable. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Respectable is good for like the right moments, but living that way like day to day is like kind of boring. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Yeah. It's good for a public face. Wait, you're from you're from Oakland, yeah? I'm born and raised in the Bay Area and I've lived in Oakland. I don't know, for the last 20 years or so. Are you a Too Short fan? I am. Okay, here's my thing. And this is because I was, like, in the gym earlier today, and I was, like, writing, like, some, like, feminist thing, like, going through the notes in my head while listening to Luke. And I was like, you know what? Like, there's a big disconnect here that I never want to (laughs) change. But I have the same issue, like, with Too Short, because, like, my favorite word is his when that song is on. But I'm also very much like a public feminist, which I was like, yes. I don't know how to reconcile these two. Or do I? Yes. Yes, you do. You do. Because you do it every day, which is that, um, you know, being a feminist doesn't mean that you're dead. And I think so often what we forget is that feminism actually does embrace complexity. And feminism is really just about power. And there are so many ways in which, sure, Too Short is not a feminist. Um, And, you know, this is the music that a lot of us feminists grew up on. It's, you know, context and culturally specific. And I think for a lot of us who are feminists, who don't listen to Too Short anymore, but certainly if Blow the Whistle comes on in the club, we are all out there. We are able to hold a level of complexity around both situating something in a particular moment um, and also recognizing where it's problematic. Having grown up in the Bay, 
which is really, I think, one of the epicenters of excellent music that um, has sat in really problematic spaces and contexts. Um, one of the things that I think is really important for us to know as feminists, right, is that we are trying to build a world where all genders, right, but particularly those that have been kind of X'd out of power and self-determination actually get access to that. Exactly. And the current ones, like there's a few now that I'm just like, I shouldn't be listening to this. And it's just raunchy and filthy. And I'm like, I love it. That just, like, the beat is good. Whatever. Correct. Correct. Major contradiction, right? Major contradiction. But human. But it is human. And um, what's important about it is that we're not, like, defending it. What is important for me is that um, the kind of feminism that we're building allows us to find some level of joy in, like, very mundane things where they are mundane. I do have lines that I draw, um, and certainly I think, um, like many of us, right, we have our preferences and our things that we don't prefer. Um, you know, I had a lot of contradictions for a while when I was younger around R. Kelly. Mm. I don't have those contradictions anymore. I can't actually listen to his music, even though it is catchy and there's a good beat and all the things, and I grew up on that music. There's something in there for me about um, how he continues to engage women and young girls and is really an advocate for um, young women and girls to not have power and to um, give up their power to him. Uh, I can't listen to his music anymore. It just doesn't sit with me. I think the thing for me coming up in the Bay and knowing a lot of these artists is like the entertainment industry is a big beast that um, really encourages uh, um, problematic behavior towards women. That's not always who people are, right? So people who want to sell records um, is one thing. And then the way people are in community is, is can be, not always, it can be a different thing. And I can hold that. You know, what's funny is I started my career covering hip hop. And for a while, I was the person that they sent to interview rappers when they were going into jail and fresh coming out of jail to a fault. The R&B singers or like the rappers who were like middle of the road were always assholes, were always inappropriate, always said inappropriate things, always propositioned me. The more gully, the harder the rapper, the more sweet they were. Like Beanie yeah. Siegel was a sweetheart. Styles P, I interviewed him right when he got out of jail for like breaking someone's eye socket. The kindest man ever. A drink of water, made sure the door was left open so I wasn't feeling away, walked me to my car at the end of the interview. And I was like, who yeah. are you? Exactly. I mean, that's the challenge, right? Is that I think a feminist analysis has to have um, an assessment of all the different pieces. And it's rarely as simple as this person is a misogynist or this person is not a misogynist, right? And if we don't have an analysis of the way in which entertainment and consumer culture actually builds itself on patriarchy, uh, then we can't actually get clear about, you know, where hip hop, rappers, lyrics, all of that stuff, where it sits in relationship to um, the struggle to be treated as human beings. Speaking of rappers and the struggle to be treated as human beings, what did you think about T.I. and his admission that he checks his daughter's hymen annually Assuming to see if she's still a virgin. Oh, 
I thought so many things and I thought a lot more things than I probably would normally because just the week before I sat on a stage with him at the Apollo Theater doing a reading of Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm. It's really true that black women are like the least protected, the least valued people like on this planet. I I mean, I, I felt um, horrified. I felt horrified for his daughter. I felt that um, her agency really was not taken into account. And I felt horrified for her that very intimate decisions um, got shared like that, I'm sure, without her permission or her knowledge beforehand. I also think that uh, I was really taken aback by the adherence to like a pseudoscience around the hymen that I thought got left in the 1960s, but apparently it's alive and well in 2019. Here's something you don't know about me, is that for many, many years, probably over a decade, I was a sex health educator, which means that I talk to people a lot about sex and their bodies, intimacy and desire. Uh, I did that through, um, you know, clinics um, in different places. I like really spent a lot of time um, doing public education and awareness and also working with people one-on-one around all of these fears that in particular women have about our bodies that are 100% generated by men. And the hymen issue is one of the biggest ones. Um, I I hope that T.I. has learned up to this point, and I hope that that doctor told T.I. at some point um, that, you know, a hymen is not an indicator of virginity. Um, I hope that that doctor was talking to his daughter about the fact that she is under no obligation to sign over access to her medical records to her father. Um, and I really hope that moving forward, that she has a level of support around any form of backlash she might receive um, from that. I also think that one of the things that feels really problematic to me about the ensuing conversation is that people have taken it as like a level or a measure of good parenting. And I'll just be super honest. I don't I don't have kids, so I don't have judgments about how people parent or not. But I can say that um, having worked with people around sex and desire and their bodies and intimacy, um, I can tell you that it's really important um, to talk to your kids um, about sex and desire and pleasure and intimacy in ways that are not shaming or shameful um, and in ways that build their capacity to make decisions that are good for them and that are informed with the right, current, factual, truthful information. As long as we keep telling these myths about sex and desire and pleasure, we get ourselves and each other into a lot of trouble. So if T.I. is listening, your hymen, being intact or not, has nothing to do with whether or not you're having sex. But um, one thing that we should be talking about is how to create the kind of environment where your child, no matter what gender, feels like they can talk to you in a real way about pleasure and desire and their desires and intimacy. Otherwise, they're most likely sneaking around doing things unsafely because they're not getting the right information and because they're being shamed about their choices. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just read that he's um going to be on Red Table Talk. I know, I'm going to listen to it. I I read that yesterday and I was like, I need to hear this. Yeah, and I don't and know I, like what he could say at this point. Like part of me just wants him to like not talk and just move on to something else. Unless he's had like a great change of heart and he's going to be like, hey, I heard all the backlash and I realized perhaps I was approaching this whole thing in the incorrect manner. I don't see T.I. doing that, but I think he's going to do one of a few things. Depending on the environment, he will either double down or he will pivot to being an attentive father. And I think what's hard about that pivot, if he makes it, um, and to be honest, like when I listened to the interview, I, I actually thought he was, um, he found humor in this and was saying it uh, not to be a great example of how good of a parent he is, but I think he was um, trying to get some laughs. Uh, mm. Unfortunately, I mean, if we take it really seriously, which I think we should, it is an indicator of such problematic gender dynamics. Fathers, you don't own your daughters. <laughs> when your daughters become adults, um, they are their own person. And um, what they need from you, right, is um, support and guidance and encouragement. But they also um, need to be the master of their most intimate lives. So there's that. Number two, what it means to, like, raise strong women, right, is to allow women to make decisions for our fucking selves <laughs> revolutionary yeah. it's a revolution yeah it's like when we're not able to do that um we get into a lot of trouble third um i often think that those kinds of responses to um women and in particular men who um, end up having daughters and they may be involved in a culture that doesn't respect women um is that there's an impetus to have your daughter be different than the women that you're hanging around with. Um, and that is problematic on a bunch of levels. But ultimately, I do think that um, what I hope for from the conversation is that TI is open, open to listening and to acknowledging where he's learning and where he's still struggling to learn. I think that would make a really powerful interview. I hope that's what it is. Me too, girl. <laughs> I don't, I don't, T.I., he'll give you these, like, these moments where you're like, thank God he was in the room and said something. And then uh -huh. other times you're just like, bruh. Uh -huh. It's so, yeah. Well, it's a trip, right? Because this is exactly the complexity that we were talking about. <laughs> yes. So how can we hold T.I. Um, for the times when he's made interventions that needed to be made and probably could only be made by him? And how do we also hold him accountable at the same time? Here's the reality. For every person who is a public figure for whatever reason, um, they are incredibly complex, right? And um, what we know about celebrities and public people is that um, they have images that are carefully crafted for the public to love them, um, but their humanity comes out all the time because we're actually just human beings that have contradictions and layers and make mistakes and think problematic things. And yeah, so there's a lot in there. How did you deal with becoming a public figure? Cause the version of the story and you can fill in all the gaps here, but the version of the story that I have for black lives matter is after George Zimmerman is acquitted, you put out this tweet, it goes viral 
and then Black Lives Matter emerges. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one story. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's what I was like, what, is, what else is there? Because that seems way too simplistic. Well, I think what's real is that Patrice and myself, we have been organizers for a long time. And so part of um, what it means to go viral, right, is like, these are also people who are in our networks that have their own networks and then things, things carry through that. Um, and it also means that, um, you know, social media and the way it's configured really does um, allow for more eyes to be on a thing. I don't know that I've figured out how to deal with this level of visibility. I, the only thing I can say is that I learn how to deal with it every single day. There's things that I feel like I know now, and there's also things that I feel like, oh, I didn't see that coming, <laughs> right? The thing that's helped me the most, I think, is just to remember that I belong to myself. So one of the things that um, is really true about any level of visibility is that people claim you, which is wonderful. But um, people that you don't even know or have no relationship to um, feel like they know you and in some ways they feel like they own you. And I think that that happens a lot in particular in activism where um, because there has emerged like a weird celebrity culture in activism, um, you know, people treat you the same way that they treat a TI, right? Um, the difference is like, I'm not selling you anything. <laughs> I'm not dependent upon you liking me or not liking me. Actually, I've been doing this work for a long time and I'm gonna continue to do this work whether or not you know my name. And so part of what it's been for me has been to just remember that um, the people that I'm accountable to are people who I'm in relationship with, real people that I've actually had conversations with and not on Facebook or social media, um, and real people for whom we're accountable to each other. Accountability is a two-way street. For me, when I say I belong to myself, what I mean is I am not responsible to or for the stories that people make up in their heads about who I am and never communicate to me, I'm not accountable to those stories. <laughs> I can only be responsible for what I can be responsible for. And 99% of that is just me. Just you. Just me. When was the, um, the first time you realized that there'd been a, it's kind of weird to describe, a switch in the public perception of you? I'm trying to avoid saying famous because it's a weird thing to to describe. Was it like an invite somewhere? Or did you get recognized somewhere? And you were like, oh, I'll tell you for me. Where I had a blog and, you know, I, I just wrote and I was writing to myself and other people read. I wasn't even checking the numbers. And I was on a date with this guy once in Philly and this woman came up to the table and she said, oh, my God, I read your blog. And she said, is this? And it wasn't. Uh-uh. And, <laughs> and I was no. like, oh, oh. And the, the dude is looking at me like, yeah. Oh, no, um, no, no. That's not good. That's not good. Um, and I give him, like, the general overview. He was like, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And he was like, no, what kind of writer are you exactly? And I was like, oh, there's been a shift. People yeah. will come up to me. They'll ask me things. They're, they're following my life in a very intimate way. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Yeah. What was that moment for you where you were like, whoa, this is weird? 
think there have been a couple, but the first one was um, the first one was actually seeing being in an airport at five o'clock in the morning and um, seeing my face on the television when I was in the security line uh, <laughs> and feeling really, really exposed. Um, I should say that what my face was on um, was it was a repeat of uh, Bill O'Reilly's show. Um, and it was a picture of me that I think is actually really cute. Uh, but it was basically um, basically designating me as um, a, a terrorist, basically. <gasps> um, so that was really awkward. Oh, my God. That was me, like, basically sitting there like, oh, I actually just hope that nobody is like, awake enough to be paying attention to what's going on on this television um, and I'm really hoping that I get through the TSA security line. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that, that's, yeah, that's so layers of that. problematic. Oh, yeah. And then the other moment I can think of is just, um, you know, I, this has been really interesting, actually, where um, people that I actually know um, reflect back to me, right? So people that know me and that have been organizing with me for years and years and years, you know, getting um, weirdo a little bit about mm. me being a founder of Black Lives Matter. I'm like, dude, you actually knew me like 10 years before this. Like, ain't nothing changed. You know what I mean? <laughs> but for them, it had, right? Because they would see me on TV or they would see, you know, whatever. Um, so that's been not easy to get used to. But now I just, I don't know. I just try to surround myself with people who really don't care about any of that stuff um, and, you know, are really committed to, like, helping me create an environment where things aren't weird. Yeah. Yeah. One moment, Alicia. Can we pause real quick to get in a word from our sponsor? We've all suffered through those times when we really needed something. A bigger TV to watch the game, new tires on a car, a tablet to keep track of a busy schedule. Me? I've been in desperate need of a phone upgrade. But how many of us have the cash lying around to cover those expenses? That's why you need to check out Zebit. With Zebit, you can shop millions of products from your favorite brands and pay for them interest-free over time. Simply choose a product you love and just pay a small portion of the price at checkout. The rest you pay over time at 0% interest. I've currently got my eye on a new TV. I still have my flat screen from my old apartment in Brooklyn. I think I want a bigger TV to match my bigger apartment. Hmm. I think Zebit can help. In addition to interest-free credit, Zebit has no cost to join, no late fees, and no membership fees. Sign up for Zebit today at zebit.com slash respectable and get up to $2,500 credit to shop the Zebit marketplace at zero interest and zero cost to join. That's zebit, Z-E-B-I-T dot com slash respectable for $2,500 of interest-free credit. Zebit.com slash respectable. Can I ask you a question about activism? Since I think that's probably what you're best known for. You had a quote in Out Magazine 
where you said, I wish people knew that to be an activist, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a bullhorn or a protest sign. And I love that because I think that's exactly what people think you have to have to be an activist. What does it take to be an activist? In my opinion, what it takes to be an activist is clarity about what you care about and the willingness and determination to take action about what you care about. So, you know, I have a um, family member who I love dearly and we don't talk all the time, but when we do talk, it's because um, she's texting me about who she should support in a particular race, right? She knows what she cares about. She is very against war, um, very much for peace. She's very much against, you know, mass incarceration. And she knows that um, to make her values real, she has to participate, right? So she's asking my opinion about how to do that. And I consider somebody like that to be an activist, somebody who votes their values and knows that their participation is essential um, for change. Um, I know people for whom, you know, um, homelessness is their number one pet peeve. They don't believe that people should live without a roof over their head. And so they're doing incredible work that is really basic and also really hard to make sure that people are housed, to make sure that people are fed, to make sure that people live in dignity. And that can literally just be, um, you know, in Oakland, we have like tent cities that I think I first learned about tent cities in LA, actually, Mm -hmm. to be honest. But now in most major cities that I go to, I see growing tent cities under freeways and bridges um, or alongside streets, right? Particularly in cities where housing is incredibly expensive. And so, you know, there are people who I know who aren't in the streets with a bullhorn, but they are taking action on an issue that they care about, whether it's helping to build tiny homes or whether it's um, going to city hall to advocate for um, more funding for housing or whether it's literally bringing hot meals um, to encampments. Um, That can be an activist, right? Um, Somebody who has conversations with their family members over the dinner table during the holidays about Um, the role that racism plays in shaping our political system. Um, That's an activist, right? Anybody who knows what they care about and takes action on it is an activist. You know, I met some ladies who um, were so pissed off after the 2016 election that they started like a little club. Um, And in this club, right, what they do is They make sure that people in their community get registered to vote and they make sure that people in their community know where to go to vote. They make sure people know um, what their rights are when it comes to voting. They are 100 percent activists, but I guarantee you they're not in the streets with a bullhorn. What about the people who tweet or hashtag? They see something that they're interested in and they they share, they put something on their Facebook page or their Instagram or their Twitter. Do they count as activists? Um, sure. Okay, let me say this correctly. Because people who be careful. Facebook and Twitter and all those things will get really mad at me and they'll be like, it's a real thing. Sure, it's a real thing. And um, it's made up of people. And I think that um, after having been an organizer for 20 years, I will never stop believing that face to face 
interaction and building real relationships that are not solely in the digital space um, is the fundamental uh, ingredient um, towards being an excellent organizer. That does not mean um, that making a statement about something on a platform isn't important, but it does mean that um, you're only making a statement to particular people who follow that particular platform. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. But the challenge with um, these platforms, right, is that they're engineered to not bring you into contact with people who don't think the way that you do. Um, Largely, these platforms are engineered to put you into relationship with people who do think the way that you do. And so um, I'm not sure that I think activism is about preaching to the choir, right? I think that activism is also very much about making sure that people who may not have the courage in that moment to stand up for what they believe in can do so and creating space for that. So if that's what's happening on Twitter, excellent. But I also think that it has to happen off of Twitter. Off of Twitter as well. So like spread the word and then also act. That's right. Love that's it. absolutely right. Can we speak about a little bit of ratchetness? Sure, let's do it. It's like, let's do it. Our, our friend, is he still our friend? Judge Joe Brown. Oh. He's, um... But he does this interview, I guess, last week with um, with Dr. Umar Johnson, which I'll just pass on that. Okay. Where he talks about how Harriet Tubman should not be on the $20 bill. I'll, I'll actually just quote you what he said because it's so crazy. Um, the status of an ethnic group is determined by its men, not its women. And putting a black woman on $20 bill before a black man is insulting to the black race because you're saying that men ain't worth a damn if you put a woman up there first. Wow, that is so fascinating. So here's where I just, I mean, I, ooh. Yeah, so uh, I don't know what basis um, the judge is using to determine that every ethnic group is shaped by the men of its group like that's that's a big reach then to say that putting harriet tubman on the 20 dollars bill is part of the feminist agenda is just so strange to me i i'm not even really sure how to respond to it except to say i think that interview needs a lot of lotion because it's super ashy super ashy just, but it makes sense because it was in conversation with Dr. Umar Johnson, who I don't even know why I just put doctor in front of his name like that, as if that's also an accepted piece of truth because I don't accept it. Um, literally, the article I just quoted it from had doctor in front of it, and I was reading as I went, and when I said it, I was like, I was like, I, I probably should go back and redub this to take that out. <laughs> you can't, we can't keep... Um, Words mean things. (laughs) Words mean things. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Um, It's like you have to have a real degree to have that title. Um, But anyways, let's not digress. Um, That conversation makes sense to me in context because of who it was between. And luckily for us and for the rest of the country, that way of thinking is is becoming extinct. Um, I'm just going to classify that right up there with the dinosaurs, right? It's like, I'm going to treat that like historical relics that I look for in a museum. And then I say, whew, I'm really glad that that's not where we are right now. 
You know what? I think, though, that it might be closer to where we are than I actually am comfortable admitting. There was a study that just came out on Forbes, I think. I'm pulling it up right now. Half of the men in the U.S. are uncomfortable with the idea of a woman being president. Okay, but then, so I'm a data person. We have to talk about how was this survey conducted? Who did you talk to? What age groups were they? Um, There is no doubt that there is a segment of men um, who don't feel comfortable with a woman as president. Um, But I can't imagine that it is scientifically sound to say that half of men in this country don't feel comfortable with a woman as president. Just for clarity, half of men and 59% of women aren't comfortable either, which is its own special Yeah, maybe I'm an optimist. I don't know. I just, um, I'm all about how questions are asked and I'm all about who you're talking to. I really think that one of the contributions of this moment um, for BLM and for other kind of movements um, in this space is that there has been a lot of shifting in how people think about what's possible. I think that uh, in a context where we are electing more women of color to office than ever in the history of this country, mm-hmm. um, in a context where um, women are the majority of donors and volunteers and people running for office in this country, um, I have a hard time holding, yes, this is the perception of um, where people see this country going. I do think, though, um, with that being said, that um, change is scary for people. (laughs) And, um, you know, when I think about the changes that I've made in my life, maybe at that time, I never thought it was possible. So it was scared to say that it was scary to say that that was something that I wanted. Two things. I think there's a current of men who feel threatened by um, the visibilization of women and queer people and trans people. I think that there is a growing chorus of voices um, that is scared to move forward, right? Um, But I don't think that that is the mandate for the future. And I certainly don't see any evidence that that's the mandate for the present. I love your optimism. (laughs) Well, we'll see, right? We'll see. I mean, I... I obviously am invested in the progress of women. So like, I would definitely hope that the, the Forbes data or any other data that says that people are not ready for women in, in leadership, president or elsewhere, um, you know, that doesn't benefit me in any way. But I just, I guess because like part of the nature of what I do is like these relationship conversations that I'm in all the time. And people are, people, men and women, I mean, everybody um, can be very Neanderthal-ish about their, sure. their views of, of the roles of women. Yeah, I understand that. I also understand that for several weeks there was a poll that was quoted many times that said that the majority of black voters in this country wanted Joe Biden to be president. Mm. And I just, when I look at the actual numbers behind that survey, I'm like, well, you talked to 1,200 people. 1,200 people versus however many millions of people are in the country, and then versus however many millions of people actually vote, um, that's a pretty big stretch. And the people that you were talking to were something like, I think it was 45 to 60 
okay, but you have to put that in conversation with um, millennials. You have to put that in conversation with um, new ways of thinking. You also have to put that in conversation with um, various places in the country. I mean, data is really tricky like that because all data can be used manipulatively. Um, So I really like to just have context. And my experience of people, um, both people who I'm in relationship to and people who I'm meeting for the first time, I actually feel like there is a ton of optimism, for example, that a woman will be president. Um, Is there discernment around which woman and what she stands for? No, there's still work to be done. Um, But, I mean, we have an incredible field of women who are running for leadership. And frankly, um, the odds are looking pretty good. I could be an optimist. And even in that optimism, though, I don't discount the fact that there's still a lot of problematic conversations that are happening. The question is, are those problematic conversations organized enough to actually make themselves powerful? Mm -hmm. And... I'm not sure of the answer to that question. We'll see. We'll see. Is there anyone that you're, I don't know, have you made a decision about who you may vote for for 2020? I'm pretty close to making one, and I will probably talk about any decision that I do make early next year. Okay, fair enough. I didn't knew you were going to tell me who it was. <laughs> I, was yeah. like, I was like, but I have to ask. The journalist in me has to ask. I have to fish for it. Um, of course you do. I would expect nothing less. Of course I do. One second, Alicia. Can we pause real quick to get in a word from today's sponsor? Away Luggage creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, crafted with features that make travel more seamless. Now they're offering a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. All you have to think about is where you're headed next. Because getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. The Away Carry-On features a lightweight and durable shell that's made to last for a lifetime of travel. There's also four 360-degree spinner wheels to guarantee a smooth ride. And a limited lifetime warranty means they'll fix or replace your bag if it ever gets damaged. I can't wait to put my Away luggage to use when I travel home for Christmas next month. For $20 off an Away suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash respectable. Use promo code respectable during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash respectable and use promo code respectable during checkout. Can we talk about this, um, this Washington Post story about this, uh, this alleged serial killer? There is... A gentleman, gentlemen, there is a man, Khalil Wheeler Weaver. The Washington Post did a story on him. He is charged with strangling and asphyxiating three women in the fall of 2016. He's also accused of attempted murder of a fourth woman. He is black. The women that he is accused of attempted murder or murdering are also black. They are either homeless or they are sex workers. The twist to this story is well there are two one the prosecution is alleging that he targeted black women because no one really cares about them the fourth woman who went missing um, her family actually made a big fuss when the police didn't get involved and they are the ones that were able to catch him but the other part of this is 
The woman that he attempted to murder, she got away and she called the police. And when the police showed up, they were more concerned that she was a sex worker than her story of this man who had attempted to rape her. So she said. Um, it's it's a really like terrifying story, and I'm trying to I'm, like scrolling through right now, trying to find the quote. When they went to the police, the police were like, "Well, you know, he didn't look like a serial killer. Like he'd been associated with two women right before their deaths. Like they knew he was the last person to see them, and the police didn't even like you know raise an eyebrow about it because they were like, oh, you know, he doesn't look, he doesn't fit the profile of a serial killer. So they just like dismissed it and went off looking for the killer of whoever these women might be because he didn't." look dangerous i don't know but so many of my friends sent me this story and they were like this goes back to malcolm x talking about the black women black women are the least protected women in america okay so this is complicated very um so let's start with he doesn't fit the description he doesn't the majority the vast overwhelming majority of serial killers in this country are white men Mm -hmm. um so i see that and um, it's also probably how he was able to um, exist with, uh, you know, no eyeballs on him. It is also true that um, serial killers of any race um, prey on people who are extremely vulnerable, um, whether that be, you know, um, women walking home late at night, um, or whether it be women that our society deems as not valuable um, in different ways than many of us are already deemed that way, that doesn't surprise me either. Uh, You'll remember that uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, who was a police officer who was of Asian descent, actually, was uh, raping Black women um, who were poor. He was able to do that with more than 13 black women um, because he was hiding in plain sight. He was a police officer, right? Um, So there's that. And then I think we do have, as a country, um, we have very problematic dynamics around power, right? And um, serial killing as I understand it, is fundamentally about power. It's about amassing power um, as somebody who feels like they don't have it. And so even though this story is horrific, there are a lot of things about it that make sense to me, given the way that our social conditions are configured in this country. And it's really, really awful how terrible for the families um, of everyone, fam- the families of the serial killer and the families of the women who um, were murdered. That's really, really awful. I just keep thinking about like, just how to stay safe, really, as a black woman. Like, I guess with all of these stories that have been coming up, and like, there was also another story, the college students at Clark, the, did you read about that? Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was murdered by her roommate and the roommate's boyfriend. Woo! Yes! Allegedly. Yes, 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 I read about that. But I just keep thinking about, like, how vulnerable young black women, especially, um, I don't know, just being killed, you know, just like so brutally, so violently, and it's just so common. Like, I've read so many stories about it. I don't have the same, oh my God, reaction anymore, like, because it happens so frequently, you can't freak out every time. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a little scary. Like I, I worry, you know, about the safety of black women, but I also worry about the sort of the dehumanization that happens as a result of hearing that people who look like you are being killed all the time and mm-hmm. very often nothing's being done about it. Like it kind of messes with the psyche a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. And this is why we this is why we organize and this is why we fight. Um, the way to keep each other safe, right, I think is to keep each other safe. And there are so many ways in which, um, you know, we often look for like individual solutions to collective problems. And I can tell you um, there is no way to keep women safe in this country unless we all believe that women deserve to be safe. In the meantime, we can create communities where women get to be safe. This incident at Clark Atlanta um, is really awful and, um, you know, a great example of why good community is really important. You can't have folks in your circle um, that really are not for you or about you. Even for me, even in the face of all of this tragedy, which I don't think is like happening more than it was before, I just honestly think we're coming into relationship with easier ways to access information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do tell myself that a lot, that like part of what social media has done in a lot of ways and digital media has done has been to like bombard us with information um, under the same rubric of like, if it bleeds, it leads. And we should also be paying attention to the fact that um, our communities are incredibly vulnerable and it does matter um, what kinds of communities we build, what the values are that are embedded in those communities. And it certainly matters how we act on those values. I feel like that was like the mission statement for Black Futures Lab without intending to be the mission <laughs> statement for Black Futures Lab. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, wait, this is exactly what you do for a living. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. It is. It is. I mean, at the lab, we spend a lot of time writing experiments of what it takes to mobilize people electorally and black people in particular. Um, We spend a lot of time talking with black folks all over the country about what we experience in our democracy, in our economy and in our society and what it is that we want to see for our futures. And then we um, try a whole bunch of things right, to get us closer to it. Um, fundamentally, the Black Futures Lab is about helping to seed and create a Black future in the present um, and get us closer to um, having access to the tools that we need to be able to be powerful in every aspect of our lives um, and voting and politics being no exception to that. You've got like a long list, I'm sure, in your head of, of you know, tragic things that have happened to Black folk. How do you stay positive? How do you keep pushing forward? How do you feel like there's progress to to happen, to be made? Honestly, I the work that I do keeps me hopeful um, because, you know, yes, every day we can find a story of a thing that is terrible about the world, um, but we can also find a thing that is the seed of 
what can be a beautiful flowering um, new way of being together. And so for me, it's like I take myself really seriously and my work really seriously. And I also don't take myself too seriously. <laughs> um, you know, any anybody who do it, who is doing this work has to like tap into joy where we can find it and I find joy in my community in my relationships I find joy in my work I find joy in my vision for the future and I find a lot of joy in helping to activate other people to find their vision for the future as well wasn't Alicia just delightful as always I greatly appreciate you listening we just hit 600,000 downloads I'm so warm and fuzzy inside Thank you so, so much for taking the time to listen to Ratchet and Respectable. I probably won't talk to you before Thanksgiving. So enjoy your turkey, enjoy your loved ones, and enjoy Queen and Slim. All right, talk soon. Bye.